Hello and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. Our guest this week is Tristan Oliver. My name is Tristan Oliver. I am a cinematographer. I specialize in stop frame animated movies, although that is not what I do uniquely. It is what I am known for. For the most part, they are proper theatrical features. So, you know, they typically take about 18 months to two years to shoot and the entire production process is perhaps three years. So, you know, they're a big old lump of time and consequently I've done six in 15 years or something. But, you know, that's that's been some pretty solid work in that time. Some of Tristan's most recent projects include Wes Anderson's second animated feature film, Isle of Dogs, and the fully painted Loving Vincent, directed by Dorota Kabila. What you need to appreciate is what one of these movies looks like from a production point of view. It's huge because it's so long, is that we're kind of in pre-production at the same time as we're in production. So we're pre-prodding stuff that's up and coming over the next two or three months. The crew is typically 250 to 300 people. And we are working with maybe 50 and upwards shooting sets at any one time. So that's 50 cameras, 50 sets in a huge amount of studio space. And the camera crew, which is normally reasonably small, about 20 people, is moving through that environment really quite fast and furiously. So on any one morning, you might have 20 or 30 of those sets to turn around, set up again, relight, completely pull out and replace. And that process is, to all intents and purposes, is exactly as you would have on a live action movie. So the set goes in, the art department goes in, the set is is dressed, propped, then the lighting and camera department go in, it's lit, the camera is set up, any motion control is worked out, any lighting changes are worked out. And so the, the crew is is working and, and moving at a, at a pretty fast lick through that environment to cover that number of units at any one time. Originally from Gravesend in Kent, Tristan moved to Bristol to study English and theatre at university. Going on to enrol at the local film school, Tristan earned some well-regarded awards during his studies which became the springboard for his work behind the camera. I was with a very, very good group of people and we made a lot of good stuff, actually. And one of the films I shot as a sort of graduation piece won a lot of student film competitions, won the Fuji Award, which no longer exists, and it won the Kodak BP Award, which no longer exists, both of those for cinematography. So with that in my back pocket, I sort of I rang round the judges on those competitions, I got some very funny replies. Um, I got some quite angry replies from a couple of people going, we didn't vote for you. We didn't think your work was good enough. Um, I don't know why you won, which was quite funny. But one guy, a guy called Patrick Duval, he's a DP, uh, still, I think, God bless him. Um, he gave me some work as a focus puller and I went to work with him on a few things. And that's when I discovered that I was really, really bad at focus pulling which is both a good and a bad thing because obviously I couldn't progress through the camera department in that conventional way. But at the same time, if you are a really good focus puller, that's what you do for life because people won't let you come out of it because you're so valuable, you know. 
they never stop working, good focus pullers. They are, they're fabulous. Starting out with work on music videos, it wasn't long before Tristan had found his way to Nick Park's Ardman Studios, also based in Bristol. This marked the beginning of a long-standing relationship with the company, leading to work on Academy Award-winning films The Wrong Trousers, A Close Shave, and later Chicken Run. I rang up Ardman one day because I needed some lights and I knew some people at Ardman because they were friends of mine in Bristol. And I said, I need to borrow some lights. And they went, that's absolutely fine. What are you doing next week? And I went, mm, nothing. And they said, would well, you want to come down and finish off a commercial for us? And they were so laid back at Ardman in those days. There were only like four of them. They just take a job on and it would never be scheduled. So they just they just shoot it and it would take as long as it took, you know. And so crew were constantly leaving because they were booked on other jobs, you know. Some guy had a some film he had to get off and make. He went, oh, sorry, I can't come in again. It was entirely freelance at Ardman. Um, at the time, they had the two guys who set it up. Uh, Nick Park was just like um, this kid from film school in the corner finishing off his graduation project, which was Grand Day Out. And they had a producer. And so all crew just came in and out as freelancers. So anyway, I went and I finished off a job. And, you know, I was 25 and I was shooting a commercial on 35mm, which was great. And, you know, I, I kind of stuck around. You know, I, I, I fell into it. It was never my intention to go into animation. And I was good at it. They liked what I did. So I hung at Ardman for a long old time, actually. And after a time... This job, this little film called Wrong Trousers came along and they asked me to be part of the team for that. All through those days, I was freelance and I I did work for other people as well. And I was based in London because I didn't want to live in Bristol. But I I just felt more comfortable in London uh, commuting to Bristol when I needed to. I don't think that the traditional career trajectory exists anymore. And in fact, I don't even think it existed when I was trying to get into the business. You know, the idea that you start as a runner, become a clap loader, become a focus puller, become an operator, become a cinematographer, that is not a system that pertains in any reasonable universe that we live in anymore. When I advertise for camera assistance, I get CVs in and there's someone's name at the top and it says director of photography. And that goes in the bin because if you're applying for a camera assistant role, why are you calling yourself a director of photography? And if you are a director of photography, why do you need a camera assistant role? So I think people should be very careful about what they call themselves because although it sounds great to say you're a cinematographer, if you're not, you're not. And it's... it's It takes an awful lot of time and hard work and skill and talent to get that name. I didn't stop calling myself a lighting cameraman until I was well into my 30s. Being a director of photography is also about knowing how to go about what you're doing when you feel like death. When you get up in the morning and you've got flu and you can't ring up and go, do you know what, I can't come in today. No, you can't do that. You have to go in and you have to do the job. And at that point, all your natural artistry is buried somewhere in a fog of phlegm and nausea. And you need to call upon your experience and the fact that you've done A, B, C and D before is so useful at that point because you can go in and you go, okay, you talk to your gaffer, you just say, right, 
just light the site like this, put the key light here. Da, 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 da. It may not be your best work, but it is some work. And that's what experience gives you. But I also think that a firm technical knowledge of the equipment you're using is essential because if you don't know what the tools can do, how can you use the tools? You need to know how the lenses look and work. You need to know what the camera can do and what the camera can't do. So it becomes an extra color in your palette. It becomes an extra brush, you know, that you can put to full use. But if all you're doing is using your naturally talented eye, which I'm not taking away from anyone, then you're, you're not making full use of everything. It's like doing heart surgery. The more you do, the less people die. And I think, you know, for anything, you, you, you peak at roughly the point you have to stop. I worked for many years with a dear friend of mine called Dave Rudette, who's also a stop frame cinematographer. Uh, and I did wrong trousers with him and I did chicken run with him and I did curse the wear rabbit with him. And we kind of double headed those things because we both had young kids and it was just, you know, a, a good thing, good way to do it. And he's a little bit older than me and I assisted him for a while. And I can remember very, very early on, he said to me, you're meant to be asking more questions. And I thought, <clears throat> yes, I am. And I realized that I had actually fallen into a place where I was comfortable way too early. <laughs> and so that, that, that was a real lesson. Pretty interesting working with Wes Anderson, actually, because Wes doesn't claim to be able to do anything at all and doesn't. So he never really questions anything, but he just tells you what he wants. And you, you have to do it. You, you, there's no interpretation. You just do it. So you, everyone's just like a, a tool in a big toolbox. Having completed shooting on Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs last December, Tristan has now worked on two of the much-loved director's films, following the 2009 release Fantastic Mr. Fox. He tells us about the unique process that went into both films. I first worked with Wes on Fantastic Mr. Fox, of course. And that was an interesting process because, boy, was that a learning curve for everyone because Wes had never done stop frame before and we had never worked with Wes before and that is a totally different way of working. And I think all of us were pretty just in a permanent state of, of shock, uh, frustration, and quite annoyed, I think. And I, I know that Wes will entirely agree with that as a definition. But, you know, we got to the end, and the film was incredibly well received, much to all of our surprise. And so when the phone rang again five years later, most of us went back and did it all over again, knowing that the process is is particular. You know, it, it's, it is unusual, and unlike any other production process, he directs entirely remotely. So he is never physically present in the studio. The big difference between Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox is that we've now got proper high-speed connections so we can send him stuff in real time. You know, So we were sending him all day long footage and stills and you know reference photographs, everything just went to him. And he would sit down at his computer at 7 a.m. and he wouldn't get up 
until we wrapped in the evening. And sometime the editorial department would be there until half nine, ten o'clock at night, and he would be feeding back. So he he was present, but not present. What he is pushing towards in his animation is a highly graphic storybook-looking thing. So looking at a frame on the screen is like looking at an illustration. And so to see it on a screen in front of him gives him a far better idea of what it will look like. He doesn't want to see the spatial relationships between things. He doesn't want to see the depth to it. He wants to see it as an illustration. So I think sitting at a screen looking at it takes that away. The other thing he doesn't want to know about uh, is, is why you can't do stuff. So, you know, if he was on set, you could go, actually, where's you see this here and that there, that, that is why we can't do this. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I see. He's not interested in that. If I send him an email going, we can't do this, he'll just go, we'll try it. And then he'll see what that looks like as a flat image, and it might be okay for him. So I think that's why he stays remote from it. The other big difference is, you know, this, this auteur approach to everything. So he is absolutely prescriptive on everything. Design look. It's not the normal process of artistic collaboration. You are there and you are entirely appreciated and entirely wanted by him. You know, he picks the phone up to you and says, I want you to work on my next movie. That's what happens. But you are there as a conduit to make what is in his head appear on the screen. But when he sees it on camera, if it doesn't look right, you redo it. So it's micro-controlled in terms of look. And, and that's a big difference. But that's what he does. And that's why people go and see his movies. Tristan also talks about his time working on director Dorota Kabila's Loving Vincent, which he shot as a live action film before it underwent a long animation process, resulting in an entirely painted feature. When I was on board with that movie, it was a Kickstarter project and we had almost no money. So we kicked out that 90 minutes of footage very fast, very cheaply, at Three Mills in London. And we had all the actors there, and we shot against sometimes full green screen, sometimes partial sets, sometimes full sets, in black and white and in colour. And then they took it away and they painted over every single frame. So the work we did on that, you, you never really see. But Dorota, the director, was very, very insistent that we we lit it to match the paintings and so you know directionally it's often quite difficult to see what van gogh's doing in a painting so you know we had we spent a long time sort of trying to analyze where the light was coming from and and to get what we were doing to match because whenever a character is introduced in loving vincent they are in the pose they were in when van gogh painted them so we were doing overlays of the portraits with the feed off the camera in order to get that lineup. But yeah, so in terms of how artistic you could be, Loving Vincent was difficult. You know, again, that was a sort of thing where you bring your skill set to the table in order to deliver someone else's vision. And in this case, uh, it was de Rotter's vision, but it was also largely Van Gogh's vision. So, you know, we were trying to make that footage look like those pictures. So we were sort of working to a 
150-year-old brief, if you like. It's entirely unique. It's such a lot of work. You know, it took them five years to make that movie, but God, it's done well. And it's been running for months. There's so many of those jobs for almost nothing, and then they, you never hear of them again. They vanish off the face of the earth because people don't get distribution. That's the main thing. There's plenty of finished movies sat on shelves and people have gone, yeah, we'll make it and then someone will buy it and they don't. <laughs> and it never gets seen. It does two festivals. The number of people who put their lives into low-budget movie making for years and years and years and never consider that the most important thing they have to do is sell that idea to a distributor before they turn a single frame through the camera. While Tristan will sometimes work on commercials, he tells us why his favourite work is in independent films. I've been doing this for so long, I get really easily bored. And I also think if you do too much of the same sort of thing, your game goes off a bit, you know, which is why I've never done children's series work or indeed any kind of series work, because you do the same thing day after day after day after day. And it becomes very formulaic. And what you need when you get up in the morning is, is a little bit of fear in your soul, I think. And if you go into work complacent, God, you'll make some mistakes and you'll get sloppy because you, you just need to keep a bit frightened. And I think if I do get up one day and feel complacent, I'll probably stop because I will then be filled with the fear that I'm probably not doing my best work. It needs to be interesting, it needs to be challenging. That's why I went to the States to do Paranorman, because it was a new country, a new company, a new crew. It was stereoscopic. You know, more challenges. Don't shoot a stereo movie if you want to challenge God. When it comes to getting into the industry, Tristan shares his practical tips for joining a film crew and making an impression on set plus the essential questions he recommends all aspiring cinematographers ask themselves. Getting into the film business these days, is it is very, very tricky. And I think what you have to ask yourself is, is this something I'm in for the long haul? Is this what I really, really want to do? Or does it just seem sort of quite fun and cool and I don't really have a clue what I, whether I want to do it or not? Because if you fall into the second category, then you should go off and do something else. Because working in the film business is occasionally glamorous, but mostly extremely hard work. You will book a holiday. You will not be able to take that holiday. You will have to go home to your partner and tell them that you are going to be working all weekend and you're going to Brazil for six months. It, it doesn't make for an easy social life. So don't think that sleeve tattoos, a ponytail and a big camera is going to be what happens because it isn't. It, it's a difficult life, you know? So you should be looking at creative skill set as your first way in because they place people on movies and they also pay you to be on the movie. And which is something I entirely agree with because I think unpaid internships are shit and no one should be working for no money, especially if they're giving you any level of responsibility, which they will do as soon as they know you can walk, someone will put something in your hand to carry, at which point you become employed as far as I'm concerned. So go and train and a training, you know, if you're on creative skill set, you are there to learn. So ask those questions, be friendly, Nothing is below you. And I mean nothing is below you. You are sweeping the floor, peeling up tape, 
chiseling off hot glue and making tea. And I've seen people go, well, I'm not doing that. And I've seen some people go, where's the next bit of tape? And it's the person who goes, where's the next bit of tape who gets asked to stay on? Because they'll do anything because the environment excites them. And if you go in going, well, I'm a director, I'm not a floor sweeper. No, you're not. For now, you're a floor sweeper. But you sweep that floor well and be smiley and friendly to everyone and ask someone who looks like they need a drink whether they want a cup of tea. After your internship is finished, you might well get a job here because you might be the guy who everyone goes, there's that guy who cleaned out that portable toilet. He's brilliant. Let's get him in. You know, he really doesn't mind doing stuff. To be a cinematographer, as I said, are you ever that thing? You know, you never stop learning. You have to ask yourself what excites you in terms of filmmaking. What films do you enjoy watching? What cinematographer's work do you admire? Why do you admire it? How have they done those things you like? Can you analyze how that scene has been put together and reproduce it? Are you reading the literature? Are you subscribed to American Cinematographer magazine? Are you reading it cover to cover? Are you keeping up with the kit? Are you going to the trade shows? Are you immersing yourself in the process of being that thing? Are you buying books on it? Are you talking to other cinematographers and other people in the camera department and sharing your overwhelming tsunami-sized enthusiasm with them and making it clear to them that you are learning that and that you are interested in it. Because if you are not, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You can't just do it in a vacuum. You know, everyone learns from someone else and you need to keep yourself informed. I still do this. I still get American Cinematographer I still talk to other cinematographers about how they've done things. And if I've got something coming up and I'm a little bit unsure about how to do it, I will pick the phone up and go, mate, you've done something like this. Just guide me through how you did it. It's so essential. Go to the cinema. Watch DVDs just to make sure that you're ahead of the curve. The quality of cinematography now is better than it has ever been. Even the worst films are beautifully lit. You should be immersing yourselves in everything that's out there. Absolutely everything. This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Indy Davis, and the guest was Tristan Oliver. The editor was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand patrons, They include us two, GF Smith, and the Paul Smith Foundation. For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com.